0: Hey listeners, welcome to another episode of the Kids Ministry 101 podcast. Every now and then we like to reach back into our archives to pull out an episode that we feel is especially pertinent uh, for the you to hear, for the church to hear at this point in time. And so today we'll be reaching back into our archives with a best of episode. I want to encourage you as a listener, if you have not spent time digging back through past episodes, what a great thing that you could do. We have recorded now tons and tons of episodes. I don't know how many tons is. Lots of episodes. There's a bunch of them in our archives on every topic you can think of. And so we would encourage you, I would encourage you to dig back into our archives and uncover episodes on your own. We've done that for you today, and I'm happy to present to you this special episode from the best of the Kids Ministry 101 podcast. one <laughs> Hi, listeners, and welcome to another episode of the Kids Ministry 101 podcast. Uh, Today's tone will be a little bit more serious than some of our uh, discussions, which tend to often be fun and lighthearted. But there are some very serious things that we need to be prepared for as we lead out in kids' ministry. Uh, We know that ministry isn't all fun and games. There are some parts of it that we we need to be very well versed uh, in legal matters uh, and in matters of safety. And so today we'll be joined by Gregory Love. And Kimberly Norris from Ministry Safe, uh, whose mission is protecting children and those who serve them. And they specialize in uh, consulting and training in the church. Um, I'm also joined by Jana Magruder. Hi, Jana.
1: Hi, everyone.
0: Who is going to be co-hosting with me today as the four of us discuss um, some of these matters in regard to child sexual abuse and uh, what we can do to be better prepared uh, for scenarios that may arise in the church. Gregory Love is a recognized expert in legal standards of care related to child sexual abuse, uh, providing crisis response to ministries and churches nationwide. Um, He's a lawyer and litigator of sexual abuse cases across the U.S., and his unique perspective provides valuable counsel to ministries. Hi, Gregory. How are you? Thanks for being with us today. And Kimberly Norris is a sexual abuse trial attorney representing victims of abuse, serving as a consulting and testifying expert in abuse cases, and providing crisis management and allegation response counsel to ministries of all sizes. She's an acknowledged authority in screening practices for child-serving organizations, and provides live and online instruction for churches, schools, camps, and nonprofits. Kimberly, welcome.
2: Thanks. Glad to be here.
0: So let's talk a bit about some of these hard things that uh, we need to be pre- prepared for. Um, you talk about um, uh, safeguarding churches uh, to keep kids safe. Uh, so we, we want to protect kids that are in our churches and in our ministries, but it's, it's not enough to just have good intentions, is it? Uh, h- how do we go about reducing uh, uh, risks that we may not even understand?
3: Yeah, I think that's the starting place, actually, is trying to find out what I understand and what I don't. Because what we learned from 27 years of doing this is we can't reduce a risk we don't understand. And most of your listeners and most churches that we encounter in whatever ways in which we come in contact with them, most of them think they're fine. Whatever they're doing to protect children at present— Usually they think they're doing it well and everything is moving forward and they can focus on the ministry components of programming. But what we learn is we can't reduce a risk we don't understand. If we don't understand this risk, and most of them don't, we're not putting the right fences up. And so this concept of fence is very important to us. It's the idea that the type of fence you build is driven by what you want to keep out. And so there's a fundamental discussion that needs to take place so that you can even understand what does the appropriate safeguard look like.
2: So most churches rely pretty heavily, if not exclusively, on two concepts um, when they are attempting to address the risk of child sexual abuse. And that is the idea of stranger danger, which comes to us courtesy of the U.S. government. and that's right. Yes. Yeah, It's the idea that molesters are those who um, look the part. They are long-haired, scraggly individuals, usually male, wearing a black trench coat, hanging out at the public park with Beanie Babies spilling out of their pockets. And drop
0: the van. Easy to spot if they look that way. Right. Not so easy in reality, though.
2: The reality is 90% of kids who are sexually assaulted, sexually abused, are sexually abused by someone they know and trust. So it is someone inside the proverbial fence. It is a family member, a family friend, a teacher, a coach, somebody who's involved, heaven forbid, in children's ministry or church programs aimed toward kids. So the idea of stranger danger is an ineffective protocol uh, to protect kids from child sexual abuse. And the place we see this manifested is in child check-in systems.
1: Okay, Um, talk to us more about what you mean by that.
2: uh, Child check-in systems, the idea that you give the child back to the person who brought the child. Obviously, we want to make sure children return to the person who brought them to the ministry program. But that's not addressing the risk of child sexual abuse because 90% of kids are sexually assaulted by someone they know and trust. So it's not an effective protocol as to this
3: specific risk. And what's important to understand, to really understand the answer to that question, Jana, is there's two types of sex offenders. Now, as soon as you even start that conversation, people start to become alarmed because they don't understand that there's a type of Mm -hmm. sexual abuser. So the two types that need to be distinguished is the abduction offender from the preferential offender. Now, the abduction offender is usually where stranger danger has some effectiveness. Okay. The abduction offender is generally your what your child check-in system is designed to protect children from that offender. Mm-hmm. But see, that's, the abduction offender is really the one that falls into the stereotype that Kim mentioned of trench coat, beanie babies, white van. Mm. But the abduction offender represents only 4% of the problem. Wow. So that when we talk about 60 million sexual abuse survivors in the U S only 4% of the problem is your abduction offender. 94% of your problem is your preferential offender and your preferential offender is the offender that your child check-in system is not
0: designed to protect the child from. So what is a preferential offender? Can you define that for us?
3: Yeah. And a preferential offender is somebody that could be male or female could have an age-appropriate adult willing to have sex with them, but has a deviant sexual desire such that they have a preference for a child as a sexual partner. And not just any child, it's generally a child within an age and sex of preference. And as Kim mentioned, those are the people that look like you and me. So if you Google any number of sexual abuse allegations, the ones that are rocking the church are not the trench coat with the beanie baby, and will not have been protected. I mean, prevented by a child check-in system. So it has a value. We just need to understand that the child check-in system's value, as it relates to sexual abuse, is really only aimed at four percent of the problem, which generally is not the problem our ministries are encountering. Mm.
1: Right. So, uh, so many churches that um, you know we have conversations with all the time um, are very well meaning in terms of putting in a an electronic check in system that uh, gives you know like you said kids back to the person who brought them um, those things are still i i assume needed and and valid um, but what how can you go further in into uh, protecting kids against this preferential um, Abductor. Well, and let
0: me also introduce this, because I think something else that churches are well-versed in is doing background screenings. And we, a lot of us put a lot of weight in those background checks. And we feel like if we've done the background check and we have a good check-in system, we're covered. Is that? Right.
2: Uh, yeah, the two the two systems we see churches putting in place consistently are uh, child check-in systems and criminal background checks. And we've talked about the one um, the criminal background checks are problematic as any sort of standalone safety system or any sort of standalone screening process, because statistically less than 10% of sexual predators will encounter the criminal justice system. The hmm. Department of Justice last year said less than 3% of offenders will encounter the criminal justice system ever. And that's in part because two out of three kids don't tell until they're adults, if they talk about it at all. It's because parents minimize. It's because offenders uh, are given an opportunity to uh, plea down or walk away. And in some circumstances, it's because the church or ministry or child serving organization just cut them free and let them go on to the next place. So um, a, a child, a criminal background check is an ineffective standalone system it is it has become a standard of care obviously if a church puts a child in a room with an individual who sexually abused children in the past that's a problem and has a criminal record right has right. criminal research saying so so. churches
1: what i'm hearing you say is you still have to do them yeah we still have to do it it's yeah. just not an effective stand-alone. it's just not enough and so what we hear mostly are is that twofold plan as long as i have background checks and a, a, a strong electronic system where i know um where kids are and who they came with, then I'm covered. Maybe some locks on doors and, and that kind of protocol. Maybe a couple of bathroom rules and I'm done. We're safe. Right. So or tell, the, tell, us how, how, door. tell us some blind spots though that are that you that you see all the time and that our audience who's listening and probably taking copious notes because this is this is the business they're in, what are the blind spots? What are the things that we can do immediately that would help us um, keep our kids safe? Yeah, the blind spots are misconceptions. And the
2: the most effective way to address misconceptions is to get good training. Um, We have, through kind of trial and error with ministries, large and small, for over 25 years, we have uh, put together what we call a five-part safety system. And the five-part safety system includes training uh, we, it's known as sexual abuse awareness training. It addresses misconceptions. It talks about the grooming process of the preferential offender, common grooming behaviors, uh, impact on children, et cetera, et cetera. So effective training is the first part of the safety system um secondly having an appropriate screening process that has to be more than uh, a criminal background check that means applications interviews references that means you utilize questions that are meant to elicit a high risk response
1: and because- so my experience from doing y'all's training when i was on church staff we came 5 years ago to some training that some live training that you all did in Fort Worth because really we consider y'all the, the leading voice in this, um, this important topic, but that was one of our biggest takeaways was the power of the interview. So tell Mm -hmm. us about those questions that you're talking about that aren't just, you know, uh, an interview about, you know, how'd you, you know, how'd you come to know the Lord? We want to know your, your testimony of course, but those are things that, that someone, um, could really pass easily. What are some good questions in the interview that would help us identify, maybe to take a closer look?
2: Yeah, well, we got to use questions that are meant to elicit a high risk response. And an example of the type of question that I'm referring to, um, these are, by the way, resources and tools that are up and available to ministries at ministrysafe.com. But an example of a question that would, uh, a protocol or questions that you'd wanna ask um, in the screening process um, is asking an applicant to list the, con- the places in the past where they have interacted or served children, re- whether that's as a volunteer or, or as an employee. And as you do that and look at the places that the individual has spent time interacting with children in the past, you are looking for a pattern of working with the same uh, age and gender of child. Um, You want to ask questions about um, gaps, for instance. If you notice in the application for either an employee or a volunteer that there's time periods that are missing during the time that someone was employed, for instance, in an employment application, people typically work because people like to eat
1: Mm-hmm. So if,
2: right. So if you see gaps in time periods that are unaccounted for in an application, that would be a risk indicator. The male preferential offenders um, leave the last place because it started to get hot or kids are aging out of their age of preference. Hmm. And they're not going to tell you about the, those locations where um, staff members or co-employees or uh, or a parent was uh, complaining about behavior, and that yields gaps
1: mm-hmm.
2: in mm. applications. And um, so, asking the right questions um, is the starting point. Um, asking references, questions like, Would you feel, do you know this person in the context of working with kids? Would you feel comfortable leaving your own children in the care of this individual? Mm. Um, uh, Preferential offenders sometimes have a difficult time giving you references who know them well or know them in the context of working with kids because there have been issues in those locations in the past. There have been boundary violations. There are rumors or whispers about what happened or what occurred that that the offender doesn't want you to know about. Um, So they tend to give you references that either don't know them well um, or are, you know, very remote Uh, interaction with that individual.
1: And what I found with the interview process is that if they felt like those questions were uncomfortable, some of them would just opt out on their own. And you wouldn't even have to make a hard decision saying, I'm sorry, we're not going to invite you to serve in our ministry. They'll Mm -hmm. opt out on their own because they feel a little bit uncomfortable or a lot uncomfortable if you ask the right questions.
2: Yeah. It's a great screening. A children's minister, um, anybody involved in children, children ministry as a vocation should be working on the, uh, under the assumption that, um, any opportunity we can give mm-hmm. the inappropriate applicant to opt out of your program. Um, we should take those opportunities and a great opt out opportunity is communicating to any volunteer potential volunteer or employee that we're going to ask the right questions and we're going to ask for references. And we're going to have policies and procedures in place that uh, specifically address grooming behaviors and the grooming process of a preferential offender. Uh, and we, we report to law enforcement when we have suspicions of abuse. I mean, what you want to communicate is it might be easier someplace else.
3: Right. And we do, the, and we do these things unapologetically.
0: Yes. Yeah. Well, so that five part safety system we've we've discussed the importance of training, that, that awareness training and of the screening process. Talk to us a bit about the next one, policies and procedures. What are some policies and procedures that we need to be uh, on top of?
3: Once again, as I mentioned earlier, the type of fence you build is driven by what you want to keep out. So when we ask people just the <clears throat> the question in ministries whether we're teaching in the seminaries or meeting with, you know, children's ministry leaders, Like, what do you do at your church? What do you do in your program to protect children from sexual abuse? Oftentimes, the list is going to include the background checks, the child check-in system. But oftentimes, people will also tell us about their policies. Okay, it's just one of those things that's supposed to make the list. But the difficulty is, is your policies is that document which should describe what is and is not appropriate behavior in your sheep pen. or That sheep pen is what we call the place where you gather your children, Okay, so if you're going to have something that's going to describe your bright lines and your boundaries as to what are the appropriate and inappropriate behaviors in your sheep pen, you see it begs some information first, which is what Kim alluded to, that the grooming process is the key. So how grooming unfolds in a children's ministry, for example, is different than how grooming may unfold in a special needs horseback riding camp. Okay, so the people that are delivering services in children's ministry need to be very familiar with what does the grooming process of the preferential offender look like in a children's ministry type of programming. Once you understand what grooming looks like in a children's ministry program, now you can build your policies and procedures that are designed around those particular behaviors, not just draft something so you can have something to list when I ask you that question, So one of the things, for example, in children's ministry is what are going to be your clear boundaries on forms of touch? What are going to be your staffing ratios? If you're going to use teenagers, you know, from your high school ministry as part of your leadership in BBS, what is your screening process for those 16 year olds? What is your training requirement for those 16 year olds? Okay, so if you're going to have, you know, bathroom use, you know. What are going to be your rules around bathroom use? Who can be gone? How many people at a time? Who's supervising those areas? So your policies and procedures is going to be that what creates your bright line boundaries, but it needs to be driven by an understanding of the grooming process to make sure that what boundaries you're putting in place is related to the risk that unfolds.
0: So being on top of those things is something that comes, I would think, from that training. Right where we, You mentioned it all, these all kind of tie together. We need to be well-informed so that we can recognize uh, some of the telltale signs. Uh, we need to be uh, prepared when we do our screenings, and those things help us design those policies that will provide a safeguard.
2: Right. Our, our perspective has become that if you don't give your people the why through effective training, Uh, Again, we call our variation of the training courtesy of the state of Texas is called sexual abuse awareness training, Hmm. um, which in our state is a required training for many child serving contexts. Um, but sexual abuse awareness training replaces those misconceptions with factual information and then describes the preferential offender's grooming process as well as common grooming behaviors. We believe it's very important to give ministry personnel, whether they're employees or volunteers, the why before you give them the what Mm-hmm. The what is the policy. The why is here's why we do what we do. This risk exists. Here's how it manifests. Here's how it unfolds. Here's why we need these bright lines in place in our policies. And the what is the policies and procedures.
3: Mm.
2: And this, is, this goes back to, you know, in every ministry context you've got rule followers and non-rule followers and your rule followers will try to do what you told them to do because you told them to do it mm-hmm. but they'd be much they'd be much more effective for you in protecting kids and providing ministry to those kids if they understood the reasons behind the rules. Mm. Um, non-rule followers um, only do well if you give them a why because they believe the rules don't apply to them unless they understand the why behind the rules. So it's, it's about giving people the why and then putting bright lines in place, utilizing your policies and procedures that dovetail into the information that you've just given to your staff members and volunteers through sexual
3: abuse awareness training. But Chuck, you did put your finger on it. If you get back up to 30,000 feet, information is the key, correct information, not the misconceptions that leads you to believe that a background check in the child check-in system is sufficient. The key is understanding the risk. For leadership, it's important to understand the risk so you'll understand what system to put in place. And I think coincidentally, actually not coincidentally, you will find that it needs to include those five parts. But the information is also critical for the people that wear the name tag. It is not just enough for a Pinnacle employee to know all of this. It's their job to build the system But then there is an appropriate amount of that training that needs to be communicated to everybody paid or unpaid that wears a name tag so that they know how to participate in the system that's been developed. So with good information about the risk, now everybody can understand what is my role in reducing that risk that's directly related to exactly how the children will come under attack in ministry contexts.
2: Yeah, and the two remaining uh, parts of the safety system that we haven't talked about yet uh, are criminal background checks. And between you and me, criminal background checks are part of an effective screening process, but we list it as a separate element because so many ministries believe criminal background check equals screening. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. Right.
2: So we, we've listed it separately so that it's clear that it's a it's not a standalone system. And the last part is uh, monitoring and oversight. This is, um, you know, the concept of doing what you say you do. You don't just put something together and float it out there and assume that it's going to sustain itself. It means incorporating your safety protocols into performance reviews, periodic review of your policy to make sure it still fits your program. I mean, I do a lot of consulting work for very large churches, mega churches. And what we find as time goes on is that programs come into existence that provide services to kids that aren't even that the church isn't even aware of in an ongoing way other than kind of peripherally. So making sure that um, your protocols and your policy and your training and your screening practices um, are occurring uniformly um, is all part of monitoring and oversight.
1: That's great. Well, um, we could keep going, and the good news is this is going to be a two-part series. And so we're going to be joined with Gregory and Kimberly again for our second iteration of uh, talking about this very important topic. So you'll want to join us next time.
0: Yeah, thank you, Gregory Love and Kimberly Norris for sharing your time and your insights with us. Church leaders, um, this is something that we can't afford to ignore. Uh, this is one of those issues where it can be easy to dismiss uh, in our minds and think this is something that happens other places, not in my church, not in my ministry. And the reality is we are all at risk. And so we need to be wise. We need to go in with eyes wide open and we need to be well informed and well prepared as uh, Gregory and Kimberly have shared. Uh, For more information on Ministry Safe, I want to encourage you to visit ministrysafe.com. There you will find a uh, really uh, helpful and insightful blog, uh, articles, links. Uh, there's opportunities to, uh, to investigate the live training uh, that Kimberly and Gregory offer through ministrysafe.com. So please check that out. We'd also encourage you to visit ministrysafeinstitute.com where you can find some high-level uh, training. Uh, that's that uh, – um, how would you describe that, You 2 University-level
2: Seminary level content aimed at ministry professionals who need a deeper dip, a deeper dive into uh, this risk and how it should be addressed in ministry contexts.
0: Excellent. At ministrysafeinstitute.com. And if you are in need of legal consultation, I would point you to lovenorris.com for the Love and Norris law firm uh, that Kimberly and Gregory uh, run together. Uh, Thank you to our guests. Thank you, listeners. Thank you, Jana. And uh, we encourage you again to to don't let this issue uh, sit. Make sure that you take action so you can be well prepared. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you again next time.